Liza Mandelup is a director with an uncanny eye for the everyday and an incredibly perceptive sense of how culture is changing. Last year, she premiered her documentary Jawline at Sundance Film Festival, for which she had received a prestigious Sundance Documentary Fund grant the year before. The film stunned audiences at the festival, and Liza went on to win the Special Jury Award for Emerging Filmmaker. In this conversation, we discuss the intensely collaborative work that went into directing that film, which is now available on Hulu, her personal and professional commitment to making art, and the ways that gender and identity are shifting in the social media age. My first question is about what Jawline explores and some of the early work on male embodiment within feminism. Recently in my writing course, we talked about Jawline as a way of thinking about Susan Bordeaux's claim in 1999 that women were just learning to be voyeurs within popular culture. And Bordeaux is writing about Calvin Klein ads that began to break the mold of what was representable in male beauty. And she said at the time that men are, quote, not supposed to enjoy being surveyed, period. My students were shocked at how emphatically Jawline shows that this has changed, but rather than seeing it as a change that has arrived because of a greater cultural freedom or a loosening of norms for women to occupy that place of the voyeur to kind of retake the gaze, Bordeaux says it's really about the triumph of pure consumerism and with it, and I think this is interesting in relationship to Jawline especially, a burgeoning male fitness and beauty culture she says, over homophobia and the taboos against male vanity. Do you think that this is still a fair reading of how and why men are increasingly the object of the female gaze? Do you think that now, when women are given perfect jawlines to appreciate, they're the beneficiaries of careful marketing or diminished taboos on male vanity? Yeah, no, I, I think this is something that I think about a lot, um, and I continue to think about in my work, so I, I love that you brought this up, but... Um, I, I think one thing that really fascinated me when I was entering the world was this exact complex that um, that these teenagers were having this look at me, you know, look, look at me looking at myself. And um, I think, uh, you know, even if you think about like the history of photography, you know, like women look into the camera, men look away from the camera. They're not supposed to acknowledge being looked at. So um, I think that what was really fascinating to me about the world of Jawline was here were all these teenage boy broadcasters um, acknowledging that they were an object of desire for teenage girls. And so it felt like something had switched from, you know, historically what the male gaze versus female gaze could be. So that, that was definitely something I was really interested in and I continue to be interested in. And I think that... Um, this is something that is like when you think about media in the past, like women have learned that um, the power of of their bodies and their physiques and like what and, and their physique and like what they can market and sell. Um, and I think that that's something that you know you can put into so many different um, categories. It's not just um, it's not just like. Uh, you know, like a model or something like there's so many different ways women have acknowledged that uh, beauty and aesthetics is power. Um, and I think that what's really interesting for me is I'm looking interested in this new generation where um, teenage boys are also capitalizing on that moment. Um, and that's kind of the space that or 
and then these these teenage boys will grow up, you know, to be adults and stuff. And it's sort of like this new generation of um, of men that are acknowledging that and and taking that on for themselves and letting women be the um, the the viewers. Totally. And it interests me because one of the things you note in your GQ interview is that the queerer men appear on these platforms, the more people will follow them, no matter what specific sexuality they inhabit. You also talk about how it's really a reproduction of one version of masculinity. I find that particularly interesting. You even say you've asked yourself, what sexuality are they selling? Did you ever get, I mean, you say you're kind of still thinking about this all the time. Do you ever feel like you're close to an answer to that question? Like what type of male sexuality is marketable and why? There is this social media gold rush that seems to be influencing what's considered to be a normative version of masculinity, right? Yeah, I think they're selling like a form of accessibility. And I think that like they're in in the world of jawline, these like broadcasters are um, accessible. I'm available for you whenever you want. I'm here for you. Um, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Um, and, you know, when you think of that, normally you would think of like more of a, a woman doing that, maybe. Like, I think that's kind of what you're saying. Or um, or that being something like what we talked about in the GQ interview was that operating in um, the like a queer space of sorts. So I think that um, I think that it is definitely it's definitely really interesting to think about in terms of like why, why it feels different. And it's a, a lot of it is because, you know, when I think back on my teenage experience and what, um, you know, teenagers, like teenage guys were like in my high school, it was like the, the, the cooler, the, the cooler you were, the, the least, the less you cared and the, the less accessible you were. So like the guy that, that all the girls had a crush on, at school was the guy that didn't care at all. Um, he hardly spoke. Um, you know, nobody really understood like how to, how to, what he wanted. Um, he was like sort of mysterious. I don't care. And I, I don't, I don't speak too much and I don't give, I don't give you so much access to myself. So that's like, and so then when you think about these, these guys, it feels very different that they're the complete opposite where they're all about accessibility and emotional availability. That's what felt really new to me was how emotionally available um, these guys were to teenage girls. And I think that the reason that all these teenage girls flocked to them and really fell in love with them is because teenage, the, the teenage girls that we filmed with couldn't really find that in their school. Like they weren't like they, the, the guys that they knew weren't used to being that emotionally available um, or that accessible. And I think that that's when I think about all of this turning into some sort of market that you see in Jawline. It's almost like the managers and these boys have found this corner of this mark of this specific market in social media where there's like a desire to tap into, which is being an emotionally available, like pseudo boyfriend to these teenage girls. Yeah. And you're so self-reflexive about the ways that gender and identity are sort of transforming and you're clearly very interested in the fans themselves, like the female gaze and the psychology of fangirls. There seems to be kind of a subtle point being made about the drive for connection and the idea that social media might actually be a kind of survival strategy or a means of maintaining mental health. There's a scene in the film, though, where we hear Michael talk about the fans that his clients rely on. 
Can I ask how you felt about his perspective on the fangirl mentality? Uh, you're offering a much more sympathetic picture, certainly, of these people. Did you have any difficulty accessing that sincere attachment that fangirls have to the people they follow? I mean, I always felt like ultimately the fangirls were in control. Everybody in the, the industry, whether it was the managers or the boys or, or whoever, or, or even the people who run the apps, that the, the fangirls were the one that was driving um, the numbers. And so they ultimately were answering to whatever they wanted. And so we ran into so many girls that were like, oh, could you, could you pose for like a kiss with me like this? Or could you, could you wrap your arms around my waist like this for a photo? And like on, at all these meet and greets, it's like these, these, the, the, the like boy idols are doing whatever the girls want because they know that that's like, that's, that's part of the job is to, to answer to them because they're the ones that drive the numbers. They're the ones that, who decide who stays and who goes. Um, and I, I felt like, um, it was in a sense, this symbiotic relationship where the boys wanted a platform to become famous off of, they wanted an audience and they wanted to be heard. And the girls wanted, um, this, a connection that felt like a, a guy that they could connect with that could feel like a real life boyfriend. And so the more that each of them got out of this, like the more the relationship worked. Um, and so I, I kind of, I did feel, um, I, I felt like emotionally the girls got a lot, a lot out of it in the sense where it gave them hope that, Oh, okay. I go to school with, with guys who bully me and who tell me I'm ugly, but here's a guy that looks like the boys that I go to school with but he's so nice to me and he's sweet and he asks me how my day was and he cares about me and it gives them hope. And so ultimately I always felt like that was a, a positive thing, but I, I always like right after that wanted them to find that in real life. But then there were times where we would see girls, you know, drop out of school and go to online school and not talk to anybody except these boys online. And like, you can really get lost in that world. And so it, it could go either way, but I definitely always, um, had a very like sympathetic and loving eye towards towards the girls and I and I also felt like for me the film is the female gaze even though it's like a male character it is the female gaze and I felt like uh, whenever I was talking about the film in the edit or like the style or the music or even the color palette of the film I was always saying I want this to feel like it's like all from the perspective of a teenage girl like it's her diary entry and she's I wanted to feel like that she's collaging what she thinks these boys should be like and um, I always thought about the perspective of the fangirl when I was making when I was making the film. And maybe that's a good way of segueing into a discussion of the aesthetics of the film. The soundtrack echoes the score of Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade for me, which uses music by the amazing Anna Meredith. Meredith blends these intense, swirling synth sounds with nerve-wracking beats to produce a sense of disorientation that really fits that film. What do you think it is about this genre of music that so perfectly scores and captures the experience of young people right now? And how did you go about choosing the music for um, for Jawline? Um, I actually didn't see Eighth Grade until after like Jawline was already out. Um, people like kept mentioning it to me, and I was like, "Oh, I want to, I want to watch that film after I've already made this film because I didn't, I wanted to like have, um, you know, like fresh eyes." So that is really interesting that you you feel like the score is connected, but um, which and I love the movie. It's it's such a great movie. I I loved every minute of of eighth grade. 
but I I wanted the 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 score to feel like um, like a fantasy, like this was a daydream, like like linking back to what I was saying about the teenage girls, like I wanted it to feel like um, it was like her fantasy of like what you know if she could just spend more time with these boys, what would it sound like? I I just kind of pictured it sounding like um, a lot of what the soundtrack sounds like, but I it was also a combination of me. Uh, meeting the composer uh, Kai, who goes by Paul Bowman, um, he has a very um, '80s uh, synthy vibe to him. His his music, and uh, but it it also feels um, very feminine. Um, and he he does a lot of um, like a lot of the score we did live, where he he would make a track and we would just use that track. Um, and we would cut to the track. Um, it wasn't done in like a traditional way where we like finished the movie and he scores the movie. We would get together and he would like make some music and I would take some of that music and then just put it in the, the film. And, and I think both of us thought we would do this like finessing pass where he would like go through and redo all the music, but we just ended up falling in love with the stuff he was making in um, live that uh, we, we just ended up using it. But I, I do feel like when I think about... Um, this film and other work too, is I'm always trying to get into people's heads in documentaries. So I want to know, I want the film to feel like um, someone's perspective and also add to um, how do you translate an emotion or a feeling. And so um, a lot of the description of when we were making the music was like, was, was talking about what it should feel like, you know, like, Oh, this, this should feel like a fever dream. Like, Oh, or this, this should feel like anxiety. Like I remember saying that a lot, like there was a, the moment where like Austin comes back from tour. Um, we kept talking about like, how do you, how do you make a scene that's about someone, someone being overwhelmed with anxiety and how do you put that in a documentary? And it was something that we talked about with the score and the edit and all this stuff. And I, and, and that was one of the tracks we kept going back on where it was like, how do you make this sound anxious without um, being too heavy handed? And so, um, but yeah, I, I absolutely really loved my collaboration with Kai. I think that um, he's got a very specific sound and um, I, I just like fell, I like fell in love with it. It's beautiful, it's dizzying, it works so well. And one of the things you mentioned in your interview with GQ is that one of the earliest goals you had with the documentary was to make the world of live broadcasting feel cinematic. And this is definitely something you pull off in part through how seamlessly the music combines with the images. And you mentioned this moment when Austin comes back from his Digitour experience. I wanted to talk about that in relationship to some of the aesthetic choices in the film, because it works in a really profound way on the viewer. It does seem like you're trying to visually convey something that's happening to Austin's sense of self when he has to return to the reality of his home life. There are these gorgeous shots during the sequence where you capture the desolation of rural America. I wonder if there was a conscious effort to communicate that particular kind of feeling of desolation in Tennessee, and then how you juxtapose that with the dreamlike quality of other montages in the film, where, for example, you show Tester's fans taking selfies in decadent slow motion. Those moments seem to mimic the highly glamorized look of so-called Instagram traps. Were all of these very conscious gestures on your part to kind of performatively show how the self is something we're constantly working to cultivate, glamorize, and so on? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that 
it, it was like something, it was an idea that I had, but I think there were moments when we were there filming where I didn't understand that I was actualizing the idea. Like we would go and um, I would feel like nothing was happening. So there, I, that, that exact trip that you're talking about when he gets back from tour, um, I remember thinking we were coming to his town to film this rise. And, you know, he's uh, like, in my head, I was like, oh, oh, this, this moment is going to be about him being this hometown celebrity. We're going to like walk down the street and people are going to notice him left and right. And we got there and like nothing was happening and he was actually really depressed. Um, and, and in the moment I was like, oh my God, there's nothing, like nothing is happening. You know, you're holding the camera on someone who's like laying in bed or like falling asleep at his desk. And you're like, you're, you're, you're like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm not getting anything. And we came back from that shoot, like a little bit exhausted, kind of feeling, feeling um, like, what did we just get? And then when I, when I thought about it after I was like, oh, this is, he he's he's come back from tour and he's depressed and he's anxious and that's like such a big part of a teenage a teenager's life is like dealing grappling with those emotions and we and I realized we had like caught that on camera and I was like we need to figure out a way to put in the documentary this feeling of returning to your your town that off that you feel like offers you nothing that that you want to get out of so desperately and you're depressed and you're anxious and you're miserable and you're and you're you're nothing worked out the way that you had hoped and it's almost like the first moment um in his teenage life that he he really experiences what disappointment is and once i realized that that's what we had gotten we worked really hard to kind of cultivate that into a beat in the film um and and in terms of like the b-roll and stuff you know when we went back i think it was like a second trip that we made that we got a lot of those shots where i was like how do you show like we drove around the town for like days kind of just be like how do you show um nothing like this town offers you nothing like what's a shot that like represents that and I, you know i studied photography and so i'm always thinking about like frames that can kind of tell us like which i think most filmmakers are thinking about frames that can tell a story but when we're thinking about the the, the b-roll as these still portraiture shots i was like well what represents the feeling of like this town offers me nothing and so for example we saw this like basketball court that like no one was on it. It was like run down. And we were like, this basketball court feels like dead end. Like, oh, this like light post with like bugs flying everywhere feels dead end. And we just kind of were talking about the feeling we were looking for. And we would drive around town and just get these different shots. All these cars that are abandoned, that feels dead end. Um, and so, so that was kind of, you have to like get um, abstract. You have to, you have to feel like where you are you have to look at it in, in like a new way every time you go based on like what you're looking for. And so, um, you know, I think of it, for example, even like I live in L.A., but like if I have to shoot in L.A., I have to put like um, these glasses on for like what what perspective am I shooting for? And so that scene, you know, where we shoot Michael on Rodeo Drive, I, you know, I've, I've been to Rodeo Drive a bunch of times, not like too many. I don't spend a lot of time there, but I've been there a few times. But when we went with Michael, I was like, this moment is about like Michael and excess and luxury and how in love he is with like these brands and how um, people come to Rodeo Drive to, to, to like get the perfect selfie with like all these beautiful accessories. And it's just such a, an Instagrammable moment. And I kind of went to Rodeo Drive looking for this scene. Um, so I think that, I think it's about 
um, putting this perspective on the space that you're shooting and just being very confident with what your perspective is. And so what you just kind of, what you just described was the perspective that we were looking for um, when we were there. And in the voiceover from Michael in the scenes on Rodeo Drive, he talks about it as this kind of escape for him. Um, to speak to the subtle, almost surreal framing of some of the film, it seems to me that Jawline sucks you in right away with an opening scene that shows Austin bathed in sunlight, but still struggling to get a satisfying image of himself. I wonder basically why you chose that specific scene to start and also frame the film, and where, I guess, you feel that sense of dissatisfaction comes from. Selfie culture is something that's often labeled a narcissistic practice, but your more artistic exploration of it isn't just an attempt to expose people who participate in it as completely disempowered. Um, is it just a moment of narcissism in that moment, or is there something kind of more subtly complex happening in that opening scene that leads us into the rest of the film? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I, it's, I, I was thinking, when you think about like where to start a movie, it's like, I can't think about the scene. Like I'm not like, and I know when I sit down with an editor, the editor like wishes sometimes you could be as so literal as like, this is the first scene that I see, but I know like where, um, like the essence of the film needs to start. And so then it's like the editor and I kind of work together to figure out which scene has that essence. Um, and so when I talked about the start of the film, it was like, I want to feel like I'm with Austin the minute he realizes that his phone and the internet are, is his, is his way out of his town. And I wanted, I want to understand what that moment is for him. And when I looked back on that scene, which was from one of our first shoots, I was like, it's, it's really innocent where it's him and his friend taking pictures of himself, but th that's the first picture that he's going to post to maybe get a lot of likes to, to maybe be someone that, that people could um, follow and, um, and adore and and you know he could be like this this heartthrob of sorts on Instagram and I felt like it read so innocent to me where like they were just like having fun taking a photo but um you know put that innocence on online and then and on Instagram and then he ends up on, on you now and then he gets picked up by a manager and then he gets sent on tour where it's like just you know one photo could lead to all of that and so for me that scene was like that one photo that is like the start of everything and, it, and I love that we like capture him, like he feels like none of the photos are good enough. And so it's like, and ultimately these, you know, these personas that you put online are these like confident um, versions of yourself, but, but there's like, you have to really understand that like, you know, there's, there's a, a vulnerable, insecure person that's um, on the other side of that. And so I really thought that it really humanized him. Definitely. And the other thing I'm interested in is this theme of positivity. Natalie Jarvie wrote recently in The Hollywood Reporter about the incredible popularity of Charlie D'Amelio on TikTok, saying that the soft-spoken teen exudes a youthful naivete that makes it hard to question her sincerity. Giving back, she tells Jimmy Fallon, is, quote, all I've wanted to do since the start of this. This resonates with Austin's stated reasons for seeking fame. He says that social media is all about positivity, that this is his goal. At the end of her article, though, Jarvie talks about the historically different path to fame that social media represents. She says that the hype housers and other collab houses are just carrying on a tradition that began a hundred years ago when Hollywood studios first flung open their doors. So like moving to LA to find fame may not be new, but what Jarvie is talking about is the fact that the kids now have a multi-million follower head start. 
Your film is mostly about documenting Austin's drive to escape his local community, poverty, prejudice. He believes the dream is within reach, despite all kinds of invisible barriers to it. Do you personally feel that the contemporary pursuit of fame is completely different from the drive to become a celebrity that may have characterized a pre-digital age? And also, I guess, sub-question, do you think it's possible to pursue fame without performing a specific model of positivity? I I do think, to answer the last part first, I do think it is definitely possible to pursue fame without the positivity. I think that's like one corner where someone says, oh, I could be a positive role model to these people, so that's my in. I think some some of our characters just like attach themselves to that. Um, But I think that there's... It's new in the sense that um, it's it's now more than ever accessible to someone that would normally have zero access to becoming famous, and we're in a time where you where the the the, the more the famous people are average people who have just become famous. They're normal people who've become famous. There's no longer this this like elusive talent that needs to to um to be attached to it. It just needs to be oh you got famous and that's it. And so now people are trying to figure out, well, how do I get there? Because all that matters is getting there. Where in the past, it used to, I think it needed some sort of like, you needed to to have, you know, talent or beauty or, um, or connections or something. And now there's like access um, without having any of those things. So I do think it's, it's new in that sense, but I think that the dream that they're chasing of being loved by the masses and feeling like people care about you and want to watch you is, is like an age old feeling. Michael Weiss talks about how his age is part of what makes him so well suited to his profession as a social media manager. He also talks about how, as he puts it, everything has an expiration date. He says that his strategy is to rebrand and monopolize viable young people in order to maintain what he calls quality control. But again, what's interesting to me is how your presence at times seems to change the dynamic between Michael and his clients. When they clash, for example, Weiss asks if they can discuss this later when there aren't cameras in reference to you filming. Did you get the sense that your project had any sort of impact on these relationships or were they already tenuous because of the tenuous nature of social media stardom? I think that, you know, when we, I would go there to film at Michael, the house that Michael lived in with like this content creator house. Um, and I would tell Michael, oh yeah, like we're coming over and you'd be like, well, what's the plan? Like, what do you want to do? And we would talk about um, some things that we would think, you know, oh, I'd love to film them making a YouTube video or um, I would kind of just toss out some some things we want to get that day. And then we'd come over there and none of that would happen. And we'd be there ready to film. And then the stuff that you see in the film would end up happening. And so I think it was like this, uh, that in, in a sense, that was not um, planned where like things would start to go wrong and, and it would be chaotic, but we would be there filming and Michael was trying to like control the situation. Um, and, and, you know, I think that there's always a level of performance that, people have in a documentary when you're filming. Um, there's no such thing as a camera being there and, and someone being completely unaware of it. Um, you know, and also it's like, you're, you're a crew. It's not even just me. I'm there with a the crew too. Um, so I think that as a filmmaker, I also expect that performance. Um, you know, I, I feel like when I make documentaries, I'm also looking for the person that um, will respect that dynamic and will, will, um, enjoy performing a version of themselves for the camera 
Um, so I think that the funny thing is a lot of those scenes were um, me sort of expecting them to perform for us, just kind of how also because of the nature of them being these these um, celebrity like social media people and then not at all. And so um, and and, and th them just kind of going about their day, however they would if we weren't there. So I think that was kind of that was really interesting. Um, but I definitely do make myself known when I'm there. I'm very close with my subjects, um, and the characters that are in my films. So, um, they're, it's not, it's not like, um, I'm some, some random person and they're just kind of trying to be themselves. I mean, like there's a, a relationship that we have that I'm a person that they want to tell things to. I'm like a friend and I always, and I think that the camera kind of, um, when I think of the camera, I think of it as being this other person in the room that is someone that they would want to talk to and want to tell things to. Um, so I'm never, I'm not really of this school of, of the train of thought that I should truly be fly on the wall. Don't, don't pay attention to me. Don't look at me. Like I am involved in some, in, to some degree. And that's kind of where, that's the dynamic I like to play with in my films. And that's sort of where like that you get that like intimate texture is, is the fact that, um, you know, I, well, I show up with a camera and they're like, oh my God, Liza, I have to tell you this thing or I have to show you this thing. And I, I like that energy of me being someone that they um, they are excited to talk to and share things with and stuff. And that intimacy is really what sort of charges the film. One of the things you've talked about is feeling somewhat conflicted about representing the socioeconomic challenges faced by Tester and his family when you get closer to them. How do you think your presence affected life in that home? where the problems and sensitivities were so different from the content creator house that you're filming in LA. I mean, you have Austin talking about the homophobia that he faces in Tennessee, which Susan Bordeaux would say is part of the risk that men take in certain contexts when they invest in their appearance. How did the context dictate how you had to differently push or did you have to push to get people to talk about these kinds of intimate things? A lot of me choosing what characters I'm filming with is is ending up with someone that I don't have to push to get um, a great scene from. It's more about the casting. And that's why I um, was filming in this world for almost a year before I found the right characters, um, because I, I know how much casting is make or break in documentary for me, especially. Um, so I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was about like me pushing to get certain things. It's more about me landing in the right place at the right time. Um, I chose Austin not because of his socioeconomic background. We met him completely void of, of where he lived or anything. We, we, it was the point at which he was at in social media and his personality. And then when we went home to visit him um, for the first time, we saw how interesting his family dynamic was and everything. Um, and I think that having, you know, it was important for me to have a main character that had high stakes and, and Austin's situation did lead him to have really high stakes. But I also really hit it off with Austin. He, I thought he was hilarious. Um, he made my whole laugh all the time. Like we were cracking up like on a daily basis from him. Um, I really, I connected with his mom and his sister. And so I think once you kind of find a character you like that you also um, get along with them and the people around them, you're not really, it's not so much about you begging for stuff. It's about the collaboration where I'm really transparent with the people I film with, where I'm like, this is the film I'm making. And these are the things, you know, like that 
um, I want to do. And, and I also, um, I take, I'm, I kind of think of people that are in my films as also like writing the film with me where I'm like, what would you do? Like, what's a scene? And we kind of, you know, it's like, we, we talk about stuff together, but then things also just happen that aren't planned. Oh, I'm going to go swimming with my friends. And we like follow along swimming with his friends and we get this beautiful scene of them just being teenagers at the river. Um, so it's kind of like operating in this space of planning and going with the flow. And I think that when it comes down to like the crew I work with too, where I know that, cause I, I, you know, I do, I, I'm crossing over into narrative filmmaking as well. And I know that there's certain types of filmmakers that need everything planned. And there's also crew members that want everything planned to a T. And it's really important for me to work with people that I'm like, well, let's go follow this thing. Maybe there's a great scene and they can um, just like move as move with you as things move and they don't question trying stuff out. Um, and I think that for me, what I love about making documentaries and finding this world specifically because, and the characters that I found was for me, like, I think, you know, one of the best, best pieces of advice I got in art school was don't forget to play. Where like in order to make good art, you have to play. And you have to have fun in a sense where you have to experiment. Um, and I think that what I love about documentary is like some days we're out and we're with the crew and we're just like, we're, we're just along for the ride and it's not always so serious, but then some days are really serious. And if we miss this beat, we miss this, this beat. Um, and I think that, you know, I operate in that space for when I made, I operated in that space when I made this film where we were just kind of down for the ride and, and open for different adventures, but we also like, you know, there were certain things where we were like, we absolutely have to get this. And this is a very critical scene. And we would talk about it before it would happen and stuff like that. And I personally appreciate that approach to filmmaking. I'm, I'm not a filmmaker, but I think there's a way in which the increasingly prominent place of women in filmmaking seems to be producing more of a kind of like organic, freer venue for people to create in common. As you say, part of your goal is to co-create these films with your subjects and with the people that you're working alongside, you definitely get this sense at the end of Jawline when you include a scene of Austin writing a poem. There are references to his writing throughout the documentary, but here, in this moment at the end of the film, we get to hear it, and it's beautiful. I wondered if we could connect this maybe with the rise of insta-poetry. You know, poetry as a genre of writing is increasingly popular right now due to writers like Rupi Kaur, and the fact that, as Donna Ferguson put it in her Guardian article, Poetry allows us to, as a medium of expression, to explore these complex, difficult emotions and uncertainty. Did you make that choice to include Austin's poetry at this part of the film because you see it as a sincere moment of self-expression, or was it a means of kind of exploring the performance of positivity? Because it's certainly a very positive poem. And is it maybe hard to distinguish those two things in poetry uh, that grows out of a social media subjectivity? Here, here's the thing that I think of Austin as embodying this modern teenager in the sense where he has a lot of feelings and he's yelling them or expressing them into the void of the internet. However, that comes out, whether it's broadcasting or Twitter poetry or um, Instagram or something like that. He, he, he has a lot of emotions and feelings and he longs to connect with people and he turns to social media in any capacity to try to do that. And so the Twitter poetry to me was just like another way where he was like, I feel these things that I feel like I can't relate to the people in my town about. And so I want to like post, you know, on Twitter and kind of get, get some of my poetry out. And it was just um, such a 
like I, I just thought it was such a beautiful other side of him. Um, but I think that, you know, these, it's like every, every kid that's coming up, um, on social media now is aware of the audience that they could have. Um, as opposed to like, you think about a time before the internet where you would make stuff and you would sort of, it was never really, um, for, if it was for an audience that like, it could have been for an audience, but you didn't assume you would have one. And now this new generation assumes there's an audience for everything. I'm going to make a poem. It's my first poem ever. And I'll put it on Twitter and people will look at it. But it's like, you know, maybe in generations before you would make hundreds of poems before you would even show it to anybody. There's this like immediate call to an audience for everything that they do. And that to me, like to wholly embodies that generation where it's like, I take one picture and it's for an audience. I make one video and it's for an audience. I do this thing and, and it's like their whole existence is assumed to then have an audience um and i think you know when i when i if in my head if i could glorify because you know i also came up on the internet but it's like when i when i think of generations before and if i like glorify them um i think of of having the freedom to not live like that where um you know they didn't have that that sort of expectation of themselves like they could just be and exist and then pursue fame or an audience if they wanted it, but it wasn't assumed that their every existence would have an audience. And um, I think contemporary culture with technology and it as being such a integral part of our lives um, has turned all of us into um, having our very existence be quantified by an audience of sorts. And I think that, that that's something that, um, I was just sort of taking in as we were making this film that even, you know, just the normal teenage experience now has some sort of audience attached to it, which is, is really fascinating to me. Yeah. And the Natalie Jarby article that I mentioned and any of these kinds of articles that focus on the social media boom, uh, a routine habit of these articles is to include the name of an influencer, but then as a habit, just include the number of followers they have as though it's part of their name and identity, because I guess it sort of is. And on that point about the immediacy, though, of content production, one of the things you've mentioned is that the people you were filming during Jawline kind of didn't understand what you were doing, this kind of lack of immediacy of creating a documentary, studying subjects for a year, and then kind of figuring out what the structure is. That's a very different artistic process. And I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your approach to that process. Your work in the short film Show Pony is focused on this desire for self-expression and recognition. Show Pony has this central point of feeling the thrill of having a group of people recognize you for doing something well. With a documentary like Jawline, the process is slow, but I wonder to what degree you feel still that that drive for recognition in producing your work that takes so much time the work that, you know, um, requires this level of commitment. In terms of the transition, for example, to narrative filmmaking, are you mostly concerned about making an artistic statement or does the drive for a certain kind of recognition compel you to make more interesting art? It's funny because I was just talking about this with someone because I started out doing short form things. So I was a photographer and then I started making shorts and then I, you know, I've done like commercial work and all the stuff where things that you can put out a couple projects or a handful of projects a year and you get like an instant response to them, um, whether it's on like YouTube or, or Vimeo or whatever. Um, but for me, I've 
I feel like the the thing about documentary is that it's a time-based medium. So you need time, you need time in order to tell it well. And so inherently it's 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 slower because time has to pass for your story to happen. You can't you that's the kind of films that I want to take that are experiential. You can't really make it super compact. Um, and that leads to, to two of the things that you were talking about. One is working with teenagers, especially, but working with characters that um, it's three years later and you're still making a film and they're like, are we, is this film really happening? Are we really making this? And it's a, they have a really hard time wrapping their heads around how it could humanly possibly take that long. And so there's so many conversations with me being like explaining why documentary takes so long and how all the things we have to go through. Cause then even on top of how long it takes to make when you have financing, getting financing can take a long time too. Um, so it's just an extremely slow medium. Um, and I myself, Find, and we get really frustrated with it because um, the things I was talking about in Jawline, I was talking about this in 2015 and my film didn't come out until 2019. And so there were so many years of like pent up conversations that I wanted to have. And it's, it's really frustrating to have such a delayed dialogue with an audience. But it's one thing it has taught me is um, the more time and more, more labor and more love that you put into a project, the more reward you get from it. And so you know, I have a lot of friends that do a lot of short form stuff and they work in the commercial world and um, it can be challenging, especially now I'm basically moving into long form in across multiple things. I'm doing a TV show um, and another feature um, and it's, it can be hard to watch, you know, your um, like, like watch people around you, your community, like put out things um, quicker and get that conversation with an audience quicker. But I feel like those shorter things also have um, a shorter lifespan. And so I feel like, you know, making features and making series and stuff, you get the ultimate conversation around what you're making and you get a more critical conversation. So it feels worth it, but it has taken every ounce of patience um, from me in a t and, and I'm not a very patient person. When I have an idea, I want to make it yesterday. Um, so it's really been um, this exercise in, um, in really falling in love with your idea and staying in love with your idea. And um, you kind of realize that, well, if you're going to make a feature or going to make a TV show or a doc series or, or anything that's going to take a long time, um, you know, you have to continuously fall in love with your project um, because you'll be living with it for a while. And then I think that process also allows the work to get better because you're digging deeper and deeper into what else is interesting. And a lot of it is keeping, um, I have to keep myself interested in the topic. So the topic has to be rich enough for me to keep digging and digging and digging. And, and the way I felt about jawline was, um, even, you know, on year four, we're like editing the film and, and sending it off to, to festivals and stuff. I was like, I still have questions. I still have questions for why do these girls show up? Why these girls follow them? Why they drive hundreds of miles to see them run into them at the mall? You know, why, why do these boys drop out of high school and do this? Like the questions never stopped. And that's for me um, when I feel like, okay, then, then I feel like I'm making something good is if I could entertain myself for as long as it takes to make it. Um, and then once and, and I think it's a completely different conversation with um, the, the people in the film, how you kind of need to be as transparent as you can humanly possibly be about the process, because 
Um, I, for example, never try to tell someone I'm filming with that I never try to pretend like it's going to happen faster than it is where I'm, I kind of try to explain to them, this is, how, this is our, our plan. This is how we're going to try to do it. But these things can take a long time and don't expect this to come out overnight. And even if we're finished filming, it could be another year of editing and this and that. And I try to manage their expectations because when you make a documentary with someone, you actually ask for a lot of their time and, and you, and part of it is getting them excited about the project and you both get excited. And I always use um, like words like our film and we and things like that because it's like our project together. And whenever I'm talking to someone in a film, like, oh, we, we could be traveling around with this film in a year or, or um, you know, for our project in this. And that's really how I look at it. So I also feel like I need them to be equally as invested in it or else why would they um, stick around for how long it takes and how much how much time I need from them. Yeah, and that commitment is pretty incredible. And I think the product speaks to how worthwhile it was. You know, Dan Feinberg gave the film a really glowing review in The Hollywood Reporter, calling it an engaging, amusing, and occasionally jaw-dropping portrait of a world that could hardly be more foreign to most documentary fans. And I definitely want to amplify that point that it's essential viewing. You know, it's, it's a mesmerizing, insightful piece of work. It's also unique in the sense that too often documentaries about content creators are either one-sided advertisements for social media influencing as a profession, there's a few of these out there, or complete condemnations of living life online. Because I teach communications, I'm thinking about how with social media you've, you've always got to try and negotiate what it means to build a following and still do something that's meaningful to you, not just merely be answerable to what the market dictates, but also create something that you feel connected to. And it seems to me that Austin writing poetry is, and if you kind of gesture to this, something that, first of all, he just sincerely feels like it, it comes out of him. Do you get the same sense, and I don't know if you can speculate on this, that music for Michael, you know, moving away from just pure vanity as he begins to get kind of disillusioned with beauty itself um, is a way of being closer to something like true creativity? Yeah, what I hope to capture um, in, with both the characters is this coming of age thing, essence of them trying to figure out what will make them feel whole and what will make them feel fulfilled. And I think that both characters go through this journey of looking for that. For, for example, Austin, um, it was very clear that he was a fan of Julian and Giovanni before he met them. And I was like, well, why can't you just be a fan? You know, like, why couldn't you just be like a fanboy or something? And I think there was like this unwritten rule that he, if he wanted to, if he, if he liked them, he had to become them. And that was sort of what he thought his place was. And that was something I was really interested at one point because um, it was almost like every, every one of these boys was ultimately at one point a fan of one of these boys, but instead of fanning out on them, they were like, well, I should be them. I think it's also part of follow culture where um, you're following trends, you're following what's already worked. You're looking for what formula someone else has done that worked for them. And so interesting, like with that generation and, and follow culture specifically, it's less about thinking outside the box and more about trying to break through within the box. Austin kind of fumbles with it a bit where like, he's like, he thinks he's found it and then he realizes um, it's not, that's not it. It's not working out for him. And so he, he kind of tries to figure out other means of feeling connected to people and feeling like he can achieve something with his life. 
Um, and I think that for Michael, it's very similar where like he, he wants, he's, he's also young and he's trying to figure out like, you know, what's going to be his purpose, what's going to be his thing. Um, and I, I really related to that, um, as something that like, that is so, so much of like the teenage woe is like, is, is being like, is, is, is longing to be somebody and longing to be somebody that does something on this earth that's worth doing and for trying and really not knowing what that thing is going to be while wholeheartedly knowing that it has to be something. And this struggle is so much of like the young person's existence is like, I have things to say and I have, um, I have things I want to do and I have, um, people I want to meet, but you don't really know like how you're going to get it all. And your ideas, um, and expectations are so far from your reality. And I think that both of my characters went through this journey of trying to, to close the gap on that, but they, they struggled immensely. And I think that that's like a lot of the space that the film takes place in. I'm gonna let you go. You've been so generous with your time, but I just wanna say, I think the film is one of the most valuable statements on what you've called follow culture. And it really explores and shows how gender identity, sexuality are all kind of transforming in the current moment. So I appreciate your work and I appreciate you talking to me. This has been great. Thank you so much for such an intelligent conversation on the movie. I appreciate it.